As of this recording, the James Bond franchise is entering its seventh decade, and it's never really stopped. Now, they spaced the installments a little further apart ever since GoldenEye, but we get one every couple of years. And uh, one of the things about it is that after Goldfinger, uh, 1964, the third one, the series just stopped innovating, really, and either reflected upon itself or just did its own little riff on whatever happened to be popular in movies movies at the time. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so fond of the Bond franchise is that each installment is a nifty little time capsule of when it was made, and uh, it says a lot about not only what society was like during that period, but what producers thought that audiences were willing to see. I'm going to explore that in this installment with uh, Casino Royale from uh, 2006. It was uh, an attempt to uh, sort of start up the franchise again uh, after the Pierce Brosnan um, era fizzled out. It was part of a larger trend in Hollywood for gritty reboots. It was sort of kicked off in uh, the previous year with Batman Begins. Uh, other examples that happened after Casino Royale would be the Rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, the 2009 Star Trek, the 2014 Godzilla, Man of Steel, and a whole lot of poorly received horror remakes. Except for the Evil Dead one, people seem to like that. But yeah, we'll be exploring uh, Casino Royale and just sort of pointing out ways that it is very much a product of its era like every other Bond movie. Enough time has passed between 2006 and now, the effect of how certain things seemed really uh, cool and futuristic, and now put it very firmly in its place, just like Moonraker or Thunderball. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Joining me on this episode is my little sister, Sarah. Hello, say hello, Sarah. Hey, guys. All right, and the reason I picked Sarah for this is just because we have a, um, a shared history of the Bond franchise. There was a period where I would just go to her house like every week or so, and we'd just do a Bond movie. We ended up calling them Bond Nights because we bonded during them, aren't we, Precious? Um, yeah, I, I didn't make you watch all of them, uh, just the good ones. No, he was very specific in his education, his Bond education for me, but there were some that he included that are my personal favorites. Uh, I love Moonraker because it is just the most 80s movie that ever 80s. It's delightful. But possibly my favorite Bond movie ever is the one where Sean Connery paints himself with lemons to become Japanese. Again, products of their time. I did make her watch the ones that were ridiculous in a fun way, but I didn't subject you to Never Say Never Again. We never watched uh, Die Another Day. Yeah, from what I've gathered, that's for the best. It reminds me of, you know, my son, you know, his his nephew. He really, really got excited for the new Godzilla movie, and we had just gone through all of the Marvel movies together, and he was like, Mom, let's do all of the Godzilla movies, too. And I was like, you know what? Maybe we should talk to Uncle Ryan about that one. I don't know that there are many you're going to want to watch. And yeah, it turns out that's probably not a great idea. There are a few I'm on the fence about. I, I approached you about, uh, I think it was, The World is Not Enough. And I said, it it's not great, but it can be campy fun like some of the other ones. And uh, I mentioned that the Bond girl in that one is Denise Richards, who plays a nuclear physicist called Dr. Mary Christmas. And I asked you if you could possibly get past that. And you said no. Nope, because I can't. 
Yeah, and the only reason she's named that is so Pierce Brosnan can do a Christmas came early pun. Yep, nobody can get past that. There's no reason. Before we get further, I'm just going to detail the plot of this film because it is a bit more labyrinthine than uh, some of the other ones. Basically, Bond is chasing after uh, Steve Onbono. He is a Ugandan terrorist who is the head of the Lord's Resistance Army. The film opens uh, after the uh, elaborate credit sequence with the mysterious Mr. White, who's representing the organization. He's not allowed to call it Spectre because the studio didn't have the rights. He introduces Obano to Le Chifre, a uh, private banker to terrorists. The Shifra is then subsequently put in charge of investing Obama's fortune. While that's going on, Bond is chasing a bomb maker through Madagascar. This is just a pretext to have a like a big elaborate parkour chase sequence. And James Bond, being the worst secret agent of all time, ends up commandeering a uh, construction equipment and ramming it into new construction. And uh, the sequence ends with him chasing uh, the bomb maker into a foreign embassy, shooting it up and then blowing it up before killing the guy since he couldn't take him alive. Because nothing says secret agent like destroying a new construction building, bursting through a wall, and then shooting up an embassy, and blowing it up. That is something we'll be getting into later. This, as opposed to all uh, gritty reboots, try to ground the character in realism, but he's just an inherently unrealistic character. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) yes, we'll also be talking about that. M admonishes Bond. She really just slaps him on the wrist. He totally gets away with it. No repercussions whatsoever. He gets punished by being sent to the Bahamas. While he's there, he pursues a connection between the bomb maker and a corrupt Greek official who is staying there, uh, and Alex Demetrios. Bond digs up information the way Bond does best by fucking Demetrius' wife. No repercussions for her later. It's gonna be fine. Yeah, she dies. Through her, he finds out that uh, Demetrios is about to go to Miami. He chases him there, and in so doing, finds out that Demetrios, through Le Chifre, is about to blow up uh, a prototype for an uh, airliner called Skyfleet. She, uh, Le Chifre had taken all of that uh, Ugandan warlord's money and bought stock with the impression that Skyfleet would fail. Uh, everyone else was investing with the idea that the prototype would be a success, so when the prototype blows up, the Schieffer would clean up and make a lot of money. However, Bond manages to thwart this, so the Schieffer loses all of his terrorist money, and he's in deep trouble. And that makes the Schieffer set up a Texas Hold'em t- uh, tournament in order to really get like $100 million to come back into his coffers, so none of his dangerous clients will want to collect his head. M, thinking that this would be a uh, good opportunity to get Le Chiffre to defect to the other side, stakes Bond in the tournament, thinking that if he'll clean him up, uh, Le Chiffre has no choice but to go to the British and then turn over all the information he has on his clients. Bond is assigned to the game with a treasury accountant uh, named Vesper Lynn and he'll contact uh, Ramey Mathis. In the tournament, Bond initially gets the upper hand, uh, deducing uh, Le Chiffre's tell. However, during a break in the play, Obano, uh, the warlord, breaks into Le Chiffre's room and threatens him, but ends up relenting in order to allow him to continue playing in the tournament. However, Bond is, uh, and Vesper are spotted spying on him, so that causes a staircase fight in which Obano and uh, his hench thug are both dispatched by Bond and 
Vesper is pretty badly shaken up by that. However, after that, Bond loses a really big hand after Le Chiffre has somehow figured out that Bond is clued into his tell. Vesper refuses to stake him, but one of the other players ends up being an undercover CIA agent named Felix Leiter. He's doing even worse than Bond, so offers to stake him uh, in exchange for uh, Bond allowing Le Chiffre to be turned over to the CIA in, uh, instead of the British. He agrees because he doesn't really have any other choice. He was about to stab Le Chiffre to death uh, before uh, Felix uh, interrupts him. While playing, Bond is then subsequently poisoned by Le Chiffre's gun maul. He's a about to die in a car because he's trying to defibrillate himself, but a wire is loose. However, Vesper ends up rescuing him. Bond returns and then wins the tournament. However, Le Chiffre, more desperate than before, uh, ends up kidnapping Vesper and then in doing so, captures Bond. This uh, sets up the infamous torture sequence, in which a naked Bond is strapped to a chair with no bottom on it, so Le Chiffre can just wail on his testicles with, with a blunt rope. Bond doesn't give in, and eventually they are interrupted by Mr. White, who represents the organization that is not allowed to call itself Spectre in this movie. Mr. White kills uh, Le Chiffre, but for some reason allows both Vesper and Bond to live. Bond recovers, and at this point he has won Vesper's heart. He decides that he is going to quit being a secret agent and run away with her to Venice. Unfortunately, it, it seems that the money, which was locked into uh, a secret database uh, for security reasons, has not been uh, returned to the British officials. This tips Bond off to the uh, Vesper being a double agent herself. He manages to chase her down while she's about to hand off a suitcase full of the money to not allowed to call itself Spectre. There are gunmen inside this abandoned bu building in Venice. Bond manages to kill them, but not before wrecking the uh, support bags that are keeping the, uh, the building from collapsing into the sea, or rather the river. Vesper is trapped in an elevator during this period. Uh, Bond goes up to free her, but she apologizes to him, blocks herself in, and just resigns herself to drowning. Bond manages to get her out, but not in time to save her life, and gives her some really terrible CPR in an attempt to resuscitate her. Some of the worst film CPR I've ever seen in my life. Like, usually they really try to make it seem a little bit more realistic. Nope. I attribute that Bond being you know, panicky. Also, he's more about killing people than he is from stopping them from dying. I guess. But yeah, yeah, he's not anywhere close to his iPod process. No, no. Uh, M tells Bond that the organization behind Le Chiffre, remember, not Spectre, had uh, threatened to kill uh, Vesper's lover unless she cooperated. And it's pretty clear that she made a deal with them during the torture sequence to eventually finagle the money away from Bond in order to spare his life. The last scene in the film is Bond tracking down Mr. White, shooting him in the leg, introducing himself as James Bond, and then the soundtrack finally does the James Bond theme as we fade to black. In case you don't know what the James Bond theme is. Okay, so before we go any further, I think we should talk about the source novel. Oh, oh boy. The Casino Royale novel had, you know, came out more than 50 years before this film did. So a, a number of changes were done to it, both for timeliness reasons and also just to make it fit more uh, readily into a three-act structure for an action movie. For one thing, uh, Le Chiffre is associated with an um, anti-spy organization called uh, Shmersh, who are affiliated with the Soviet Union. That's not going to wash in 2006. Hence mm -hmm. the uh, connection to a um, 
Ugandan terrorist cell. Uganda was making headlines back then for its civil war. Yeah, and they make comments in the movie about um, Lashifra possibly betting on 9-11. Yeah, yeah, there was some uh, no-steel beams melting stuff going on in there. It's just, just kind of weed into the dialogue. Yeah, and they just, it's, it's there for a second, and then they just keep going. They're like, <laughs> okay, I guess we're just going to roll with it. And also, the gambling in the film is transferred to Texas Hold'em, whereas in the novel it is Baccarat. Neither game makes sense to me, but that's fine. Yeah, another thing is that the the whole thing about the uh, airliner that sets up the very long first act in this film, that's not in the novel. It's mentioned within the first couple of chapters that Le Chiffre had attempted to set up a prostitution ring and it fell through and that's why he's desperate for money. Bond's not involved at all. Bond doesn't even encounter Le Chiffre until the uh, gambling begins. It's kind of interesting in the novel too because they give you that information through transcripts of little notes being sent back and forth through MI6. And M gets real mad because somebody's showing off their knowledge by uh, writing their notes in French. And he yells at them to just write in English because he's pissed and he doesn't want to have to take the time to look at it. Most of these structural changes are just to, like, get more action into the movie. Because the novel, most of the action is just hardcore card game. It's thrilling, guys. Read the book. As opposed to this, we're like, you know what? Um, how about in the middle of the Texas Hold'em tournament, uh, the Ugandan terrorists show up and Bond has to fight them on a staircase. And you know what? Before the tournament even starts, Bond has to parkour chase some uh, some guy through Madagascar and then also chase another dude and have a big old car chase throughout an airport in Miami. Why not? Yeah, just just because these are action movies and there should be there should be things blowing up. We need more orange gasoline explosions. Uh, another thing is that uh, they put more effort into, for one thing, there is the testicle torture scene in the novel. However, the Smirsh agent has no particular reason to spare Bond's life. He just does it because his rationale is that uh, he wasn't specifically told to kill James Bond, so he lets him live and just brands his hand instead, which is, you know, which is dumb. Super dumb. It makes no sense. Yeah. The, the reasoning they give in the movie is just a little bit more realistic. Like, okay, so she needs to get the password from him. It's 2006. You mean to tell me that nobody can hack that password? Not a single person? Yeah, I mean, if you're having a good time with the movie, you'll you'll suspend your disbelief for that. Yeah, yeah and but... it is a fun movie, so you can. But still, if you think about it just a little bit harder, you're like, hmm... Yeah, that brings me into uh, something that James Bond fans call the Fleming Sweep. Uh, this is something when, if you're reading James Bond novels, and uh, let's say, you know, you're having a good time, the the, cha- the chapters are short and brisk, and you're just weaving your way through it, which means that all of the crap that doesn't make sense, all of the plot points that just fall right into the chasm-wide hole, you just you just don't notice it because you're having too much fun, and you just think back on it later. Like a Fast and the Furious movie. The Fast and the Furious movies are their own podcast episode, Ryan. We'll have to go there someday when I make you watch that franchise with me because someone forced me to get attached to that franchise and I am going to pass that curse along to you. Well, we'll get there eventually, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, overall, I mean, I've read a, I've read every Ian Fleming Bond novel, and I can see why, I, I can see why they got popular in the first place, popular enough for them to be turned into movies to begin with. 
Uh, that being said, uh, Sherlock Holmes has had a whole bunch of movies and TV shows and other outside media adaptations, but he is still seen as a literary figure first and foremost, and that's proper. However, James Bond is definitely a movie hero. The things that James Bond is is, is good at doing as like a narrative character, it just works more uh, in a film than it does in a book. I'd agree. There isn't a whole lot of depth to the James Bond character. Even though you're seeing the story through his eyes, there's not a whole lot going on behind those eyes. And in the movies, it's much less noticeable because he's just supposed to look cool while he runs and blows shit up. Whereas in when you're reading it on the page, you, you really want to have more of a connection with the character. And, and some of it's just not great. Yeah, I think that gets back to uh, how James Bond is a sort of uh, masculine wish fulfillment fantasy figure. As you would put it to Gary Stew, he's just great at everything. And I think part of it is that he's always depicted in very broad strokes, just enough of a figure to make it seem sort of like the presumably adolescent boy who is reading the book. And that allows them to project themselves onto it. I'm this guy who can run and shoot better than everyone else. I'm the guy who figures things out before everyone else does. When the beautiful woman is talking to me, I know exactly what to say to her to get her clothes off. Yep. And, you know, he's a perfect tactician and he can hide things so that no one not even three different rival secret agents can find it. Spoiler alert, all he does in the book to hide the check that he has cashed is he unscrews the number on the door to his hotel room and he folds it up real tiny and hides it behind it and then screws the number back on and nobody looks for it. Nobody sees it. Nobody notices that the number has been moved a little bit. Nothing. I, reading that scene, was like, oh, Maybe he's going to hide it in, like, the door jam. That would be a cool place to hide it. Like, because he, you can tell he's going to do something with the door. And he look, he's going to unscrew something on the door. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. So, like, what's he doing? Like, unscrewing part of the door and, like, hiding the little check in there. And he's going to go back and get it later. Nope. Nope. It's behind a small plastic number. That's yeah. it. That's the brilliant tactic tactical move. In terms of how the character is constructed, I mean, yeah, all that's by design. He's just he's just better than everyone because you want to project yourself onto him. In terms of uh, Gary Stu, masculine fantasy fulfillment figures, I would put him more obvious than Superman, but less so than Conan the Barbarian or Batman. Yeah, that's fair. I I, I think that's a reasonable thing. You could you could go against it, uh, but um. Another thing we want to talk about before we move, uh, go back to the film is uh, Ian Fleming's depiction of feminine sexuality. Oh, boy. You have words about this. I do have words about this. So I, there are a couple of, there are a couple of passages where he talks about women that are a little bit, and I know, I mean, I know it's a product of its time. And I know that Ian Fleming was a, you know, cis white man writing this book in the, what, 50s? Uh, late 50s, early 60s. Late 50s, early 60s. So there's going to be some misogyny in there, right? It's it's a little jarring. I believe you uh, highlighted a passage. Yeah, yeah, uh, a, a few, actually. Give me just one second. So, let's see. On page 97, his thoughts on women. <clears throat> Keep in mind, this is this is actually a fairly, like, short novel. It's fairly thin. Oh, yeah, you can bang through this in an afternoon. Okay, so... He is, he's worried because Vesper has been kidnapped and 
and he needs to rescue her or he's thinking about whether or not to rescue her. And he says, or he, this is his internal monologue. This is, this was just what he had been afraid of. These blithering women who thought they could do a man's work. Why the hell couldn't they stay at home and mine their pots and pans and stick to their frocks and gossip and leaves men, leave men's work to the men. And now for this to happen to him, just when the job had come off so beautifully, for Vesper to fall for an old trick like that and get herself snatched and probably held ransom like some bloody heroine in a strip cartoon. The silly bitch. Bond boiled at the thought of the fix he was in. Of course, the idea was a straight swap. The girl against his check for 40 million. Well, he wouldn't play. Wouldn't think of playing. She was in the service and knew what she was up against. He wouldn't even ask him. This job was more important than her. It was just too bad. She was a fine girl, but he wasn't going to fall for this childish trick. No dice. Yeah, so he's totally fine with just letting her die. Straight up, totally fine with letting her die. And in his opinion, it's her fault. Because why does she work for the British Secret Service? She should just be at home. Silly bitch. <sighs> he had never heard of the Matahari, I guess. Apparently not. But the one that I highlighted and just wrote gross in very large capital letters. And I would have been surprised if you hadn't, really. Uh, is on page 156. And this is after he has rescued Vesper. And, uh, well, rescued is a loose term. She, he, he didn't really do a whole lot. Um, he got tortured instead, which is fine. So um, after, you know, after he recovers and is is ready to test that his manhood still works, because that's his biggest concern, he and, and Vesper are in a in a little villa together and and she's very hesitant about, you know, making love and, and being intimate. And this doesn't signify anything to James Bond about maybe she's you know, a double agent. No, 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 here it is. So, and now he knew that she was profoundly, excitingly sensual, but that the conquest of her body because of the central privacy in her would each time have the sweet tang of rape. Loving her physically would each time be a thrilling voyage without the anticlimax of arrival. She would surrender herself avidly, he thought, and greedily enjoy all the intimacies of the bed without ever allowing herself to be possessed. That's right. Every time he makes love to this woman, it is going to feel like raping her. And he's fine with it. Yeah, right now, just imagining, like, you know, a bunch of internet incels stumbling across this podcast and furiously typing out some kind of rebuttal about how this is secretly okay, and I... I mean, it, it, it is it is difficult to get through that passage and find some way to justify it. Yeah, his his thought process for that whole his internal monologue for that whole period of time is she's a very secretive woman and she's very private, and so because she's private, she doesn't open herself up to others, and that's why it's going to feel like rape every time he makes love to her. James Bond's not a detective, people. He's supposed to be. He's supposed to be a really good secret agent who picks up on all of the outside clues. Yeah, there is there is a whole segment in the film where about how, how great he is at reading people. There's a whole segment in the book of how he picks up every single little detail and can figure it out real fast and runs all of the odds. Uh, that being said, I mean, there are more than a few things that Ian Fleming writes that um, just tells you that he's a middle-aged English man writing in the late 1950s. 
if you want a good laugh, uh, Live and Let Die features this man trying to write dialogue for black gangsters in Harlem. It's as painful to sit through as you can imagine. However, the most dated one is probably his depiction of Pussy Galore and Goldfinger. Oh, God. Uh, first off, uh, there is some context given. Uh, Pussy Galore is kind of burlesque circus performer, hence the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in the novel, she's a lesbian. And, oh, I like that change. Uh, yeah, the whole thing behind it is that um, James Bond is, in his way of appealing to masculine wish fulfillment fantasy is going to seduce this beautiful lesbian of course he is you know because lesbians don't actually know that they don't like men in a physical sense they just need a real man to give them a good deep dickin they need the right dick yeah they need the right dick you know you can go your whole life without the right dick until you meet james bond who's apparently a huge dick so it yeah, works. I, I mean, I found that to be really dated, but every now and again, I find a guy who thinks that's true. It's, <sighs> I mean, the world has changed a bit, but no, it hasn't. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, getting back. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Getting back to the, the development of the 2006 film. This is the third version of Casino Royale we're talking about in terms of in terms of film film adaptations. There was a newspaper strip version of it, but um, we won't get into that. There was a 1954 TV movie and a satirical 1967 film that featured Peter Sellers and Woody Allen, and it is unwatchable, even if you don't think Woody Allen is super gross now. Eon ended up acquiring the rights to Casino Royale uh, in the late 90s. Yeah, when MGM swapped the Spider-Man movie rights with Sony, which ended up being a good move for Sony. Mm, uh, about profitable. Yeah, after uh, Pierce Brosnan was done with James Bond, about 200 different actors were considered before they uh, settled on Daniel Craig. The most notable would be uh, Henry Cavill uh, almost got it, and so did Carl Urban, which would have been interesting. I think Henry Cavill would have done a good job. He's a really wooden Superman, but I mean, I liked him in that Mission Impossible thing where he, he has the has the arms that he needs to cock. <laughs> He's fun in The Witcher. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I haven't gotten around to The Witcher yet. But anyways, uh, like the novel, the 2006 film is also very much a product of its time. Getting back to my earlier statement about how the James Bond movies just do whatever happens to be cool during the at the time. Not only is it a gritty reboot, but I think the things that uh, dated most very securely in 2006 they are the uh, parkour th- uh, bits. Oh my gosh! I mean, they're cool because parkour parkour is actually fairly cool, but there was that period of time where just everyone was doing parkour everywhere. For frame of reference, this was my junior year of high school, so I remember it kind of fondly, as much as as fondly as you can remember high school. And even, like, the kids that I hung out with or were just, like, hanging out outside were pretending to do parkour by jumping off of things and shouting out parkour, which, oddly enough, they're doing now. Again, my son has started doing it at nine. He just jumps off of like the picnic table and shouts parkour but yeah there's there's a there's an awful lot of parkour in the first scene and also in the stairwell scene where they're fighting in the stairs yeah it it was the hot new thing at the time youtube was still pretty new then and uh lots of people are just watching videos of crazy french guys just doing circus flips throughout urban environments and they're like wow that's really neat let's throw that in james bond yeah think jackass only online 
Another thing is just that the use of Texas Hold'em, not only was it more popular than Baccarat at the time, but Texas Hold'em was having a really big moment. If you recall back in the early to mid-2000s, there was a very brief period where poker was seen as a spectator sport in America. Like ESPN would like air poker tournaments and people would watch them. There was a reality show about it too, I think. I can't remember the name of it, but I think there was like some sort of reality show where it was like somebody doing a, a poker tournament. Uh, there was probably like seven of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we already mentioned, uh, you know, the Ugandan Civil War, 9-11 conspiracy theories uh, that weren't just being laughed out of the room. And not only that, but, you know, the whole gritty reboot thing. This is very much following in the lead of Batman Begins, which had come out the year beforehand and had taken this ridiculous over-the-top character and made him really grim and serious. And uh, that sort of stumbles upon the um, main issue with the gritty reboot, which is because even though Ian Fleming himself was a naval intelligence officer and James Bond was a composite of uh, various people who worked under him, Brawl Dahl most notably, James Bond has never been particularly realistic. I already talked about the Fleming sweep, and anybody who's even casually familiar with the franchise understands how campy and ridiculous it was during the Roger Moore era and most of the other ones, whether it was on purpose or not. <laughs> No matter how you contrast the lighting or how moody you make the score is or how many times Daniel Craig grimaces at the camera, it, it's difficult. It makes me think of Roger Moore's autobiography where he justifies the ridiculousness of his incarnation of Bond to saying, this is a man who is a secret agent, but he can walk into a bar anywhere in the world and the bartender knows him by name and how he likes his drink made. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's a fair argument. They'd never get around that. This is an incarnation of the character that I'm really into. I mean, it's been running for a while, but everyone was on board when it came out. It's a good it's a good version of it. He's he's actually my favorite version. I I enjoy the other movies because of how campy they are and how much fun they are to watch. But in terms of quality, um, this would be my favorite version. I think they're the most well done. I think that they they do their best to be the most realistic while also just sort of they don't lean into it as hard as, you know, Roger Moore, but they accept that some of Bond is just going to be ridiculous and you just have to accept it. And if you don't, then you're not being faithful and true to the character. For example, yes, Daniel Craig is a lot, you know, grumpier than most of the other Bonds. He he does, you know, stare wistfully off into the distance very often. And, you know, he's just very, wistfully isn't the right word, just, yeah, gritty reboot. He's just glaring at things for yeah, no reason. Dead-eyed stare into the middle distance. Right. But he also drives a construction truck with a giant ladder through some buildings up to the building he needs to get to, crashes it into it, and then climbs said ladder to do some parkour and shoot someone. Yeah, and most of the aspects of the franchise that people know are still in place. The, the gadgets are downscaled a little bit to be less silly, but they're there. In Casino Royale. In the sequels, they definitely play with them more, especially when they introduce the new Q. And there's a lot of globe trotting. He jumps from the Bahamas to uh, to Venice. He's in, he's in the Czech Republic for a bit. Yeah, so that's still there. Uh, everyone is dressed to the goddamn nines. There are sexy women doing sexy things. Now, the one bit that is pretty infamous, aside from the testicle one, which makes you know every man who watches the movie wince uncomfortably in their seat, is the scene where Bond is about to seduce the, the wife of the guy he needs information on, and they just do a scene of him just rising out of the water to show off how many push-ups Daniel Craig had to do before he died, before this movie started. And uh, initially, 
the scene was supposed to focus more on the woman. You know, she's in a bikini riding a horse. Very, very majestic shot you could get out of that. But due to terrain issues, they couldn't do it. So they just like, you know what? Let's focus on Daniel Craig as man candy and sort of frame it so that it kind of looks like Ursula Andress and Dr. No, uh, the first Bond movie. Because, you know, in addition to chasing trends, uh, the Bond franchise is very self-referential. They're constantly commenting on the tropes that were established in the earlier movies and then trying to modernize them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it works. It works very well. People really enjoyed that scene. If you look up, like, Casino Royale cuts on YouTube, that one usually has more views than any of the other ones. They enjoyed it so much to the point where they actually include two of them in the film. I Usually in the Marvel movies, there's only one scene of one of the Chris's with the shirt off. This one, yeah, they, they had a couple of them. Yeah, yeah, they really, they really go for it. And, uh, yeah, another thing that's brought up is just how Felix Leiter is ineffectual. Yeah. 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 Uh, He's the silly, silly American that really, I mean, every so often he helps Bond. But it's not, there are other ways he could get that help. It's just the most convenient sort of, oh shit, I wrote myself into a corner. What am I going to do? Hey, there's an American here and he can do this thing. Yeah, Felix Leiter is a little more helpful in Casino Royale than he usually is. A lot of people have theorized that Ian Fleming intended Leiter to be sort of a punching bag to make him feel better about things. Because Fleming was a naval intelligence officer uh, for England while it was on the very end of it being an empire. And as he got into writing, he had to settle into this new reality where the United States and Russia were were the big things. And England was a minor player on the board, so he just kind of has this little Felix Leiter whipping boy who'd be like, you're ineffectual, the British secret agent is better than you. That tracks. Uh, yeah, let's get into the cast besides the thankless role for Felix Leiter, who did, you know, Jeffrey Wright, who did a very nice job with the limited supporting role he had. They don't give him much to do, and let me tell you, that man is a gem in Westworld. He is fantastic in his role in Westworld. So the fact that I forgot he was in this movie says something because the man can act I, i'd say the best performance in this is eva green is vesper she, oh, absolutely she, she's my favorite bond girl she takes a character that is so dull and so vapid and just gives her purpose and depth and emotions and reasons for those reasons for the emotions i think is the most important in the novel vesper falls in love with bond for perceivably no reason yeah it's one of those things where like he's the protagonist of this action story so he needs to be awarded a woman through the course of the plot because that's just the way it works yeah and whereas in the film you know first off she has real motivations for why she's a double agent in the book they don't really tell you why she works for smirsh which is their version of the you know the organization. She just works for Smirsh. They keep her alive for some reason, even though they want to kill her at the end of the novel. It's part of the Fleming sweep. There's literally no reason not to kill her or Bond, and yet they keep her alive. And yeah, she falls in love with Bond because he smiles nice, and that's that's about it. Whereas in the film, her motivations have to do with, uh, you know, a lover that's been kidnapped and her and Bond, you know, have an emotional connection uh, because he comforts her after her first uh, on-field kill. And she doesn't even actually kill the person. She just helps Bond kill them. Um, but she has a very severe emotional reaction and Bond is very caring and gentle and touching. It's a very nice scene. 
And yeah, it just sort of gives them a reason to fall in love and be intimate and care about each other. And she does a really, really good job portraying all of those emotions complexly on screen. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when they're meeting each other for the first time and they're just sizing each other up and they're clearly like exchanging scripted banter, but the Craig and Green are just so charming that you're just willing to roll along with it. Yep. Yeah, they play off each other really well, which is not something that often happens in Bond movies. Yeah, they don't seem to care about chemistry between Bond and whichever Bond girl they've chosen. It's more, this is our Bond and hey, that girl's hot. Getting back to Craig's performance, I mean, you know, some people just go off on the staring into the middle distance thing, but he does channel the book version of Bond a lot better than a lot of the other actors have tried. Fleming in Moonraker expands on Bond's motivations a bit more. Uh, I'm talking about the book, not the ridiculous movie. Although the book's pretty ridiculous, too, just in a different way. He mentions that, you know, Bond doesn't have any connections. He's an orphan. That's when it's established. He probably drinks too much. He does two extremely dangerous things a year, and then the rest of the time he just spends doing paperwork. He expects that he's going to die soon. That informs everything he does. And all of his relationships are with bored married women, which isn't going to lead anywhere, which is something that they mentioned in this movie. They mention two out of three of those things in the movie, and they also very, he does a lot of drinking. There's one scene where he's cleaning up after a the fight in the stairwell where he just, he's washing himself off. He sort of stares in the mirror like, I can't believe what's happening to me right now. And then just chugs a whole lot of whiskey. Yeah, you can tell what Fleming's hobbies are based on the Bond novels. Uh, he's a connoisseur of liquor. He's really into cars. He's a gastronome. There's a lot of talk about what, whatever, what, what Bond is wearing and what he's drinking, what he's I eating. don't care about caviar nearly as much as Ian Fleming cares about caviar. Yeah, uh, other performances, uh, Mads Mikkelsen as, uh, as Le Chiffre. He has a great look. Uh, he's kind of flat. I, I think the performance is very stock bad guy, but he has a presence. Yeah, I, I think the best the best way I could describe it is similar to how our sister described the the new Lion, re- Lion King remake version of um, Be Prepared. Just flat soda. You know that there's a flavor there and that there could be something there, but it's just flat soda. Judy Dench, lots of flavor. Oh my God. Judy. She's, she's my favorite M. I love her. She does a fantastic job. I have a hard time arguing any any M is better than her. She Although is, I, I've liked every M. She's delightful. Voldemort's a good M. Listen, I really want to like Ralph Hines as as M. I I'm heartbroken that Judy Dench is gone, and I just don't trust the man. I it's when you have an anchor role for somebody where they're a villain, it takes a while for you to re to really reevaluate. I mean, ever since we were kids. I didn't trust Christopher Lloyd because the first time I had ever seen him in any movie was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And so I was convinced that he was just the bad guy in every movie for a really long time. Yeah, you didn't recognize Ralph Fiennes right away. When we were watching Skyfall, you're like, who is that? It's like, picture him without a nose. Like, oh God, don't trust him, Bond, it's Voldemort. Yep, that's exactly what happened because... I've never seen him with a nose because I've never seen any other movies with him in it except for Harry Potter and now the Bond movies. Schindler's List. Oh, that's right. It's been a long time since I've watched Schindler's List. Oh, oh, oh Coriolanus. 
never seen that one. Oh, well, he's good in that, but he's he, he, he's playing Corey Elena, so that, yeah, that falls, that's that falls not, in the That's book. not helping him. Okay, well, that was a tangent. Uh, one person I wanted to uh, point out, though, was uh, Isaac uh, de uh, Bancole, uh, who was Obano, the uh, Ugandan terrorist. That was definitely a stock villain, but in his few instances where he was able to deliver a line, I think he really distinguished himself. Like, during the part where he's threatening with Schieffer and he's about to cut the arm off the gun mall, and then he, you know, pulls back at the last second, he's like, not a word of protest. You need to find a better boyfriend. Yeah, and and yet she doesn't listen to him, you know? She's, she's in that hotel room. Her boyfriend is on the floor. He has every opportunity to be like, please don't hurt my girlfriend. Nothing. They leave, right? Without cutting off her arm with a giant ass machete. She doesn't know they're dead. You know, they go into the the stairwell to fight with Bond and Bond kills them and hides their bodies. And she doesn't know that. And yet later, she's still with Lashifra. Oh, yeah, she, yeah. She's in that... she's the one who poisons Bond. Yeah, she's also in that filthy, filthy slaughterhouse where they're, you know, wailing on Bond nuts. She's still with him there. Yeah, in the same shitty dress, even. She doesn't get changed. Before we round things up, I uh, wanted to go into theme questions. What do you think James Bond's appeal is? What, what is it about this character that works for you, that makes you want to watch more of him, that makes you happy to see him whenever there's a new one? I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for an action movie that has this much camp in it. It's it's actually part of the reason why I like the Fast and Furious movies. Even though they try and take themselves seriously, just like the James Bond series, they recognize what's ridiculous and they roll with it. So, you know, in Casino Royale, there are some kind of ridiculous scenes and they're fun and they're there. And it fits in with the movies from the past, you know, like driving through Russia in a tank when you're a secret agent. It's very fun to see the banter between M and Bond. It's always fun to see who they get to play the latest Bond girl or the latest Bond villain. Depending on who's popular at the time, you could get somebody who chews a whole lot of scenery. Yeah, I mean, that sort of gets back to what I said earlier. It's just about how each one's a time capsule of whenever it was made. And uh, I'm a film history nerd, so that's just a big part of the appeal to me. I mean, you know, you you see Casino Royale and you see how how does James Bond approach the gritty reboot? Or you uh, go to, say, um, Live and Let Die, and it's like, hey, they decided to weave exploitation into James Bond. That's going to be weird. Let's see what that's like. And it's always a fun trip. It may not be the most high-quality film you'll watch that year, but it's always fun. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of what carries over from film to film. And, you know, there are familiar motifs that you, you keep coming back to. And familiarity, I think, breeds more uh, warm feelings than contempt, especially when nostalgia starts becoming a factor. It's nice to realize, no matter how tumultuous your own life is, uh, James Bond wants his martini shaken, not stirred. Except in this film, he requips about how he doesn't give a damn. Yeah, yeah, the invention of the drink in this film is like a whole, and it's it's in the in the novel too, like it's a whole thing. You know, he names it after Vesper and aw. Yeah, yeah, he invents an apple teeny and names it after uh, after Vesper. Now, uh, last thing I wanted to touch upon was uh, the future of the franchise because there is a there's a new Bond coming out in a couple of months as of this recording, and everyone's assuming this is going to be Craig, uh, Craig's last go for him, and there's going to be a new one afterwards, and probably a reset of some sort. Uh, first off, I'm I'm hopeful for this one. I didn't think Spectre was very good. Uh, that seems to be the general consensus amongst me, amongst people, but 
it would be very nice if a Bond actor just, like, went out on a good note. It'd be a first. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Spectre was as bad as, say, you know, the average person did. As you can tell, I don't have particularly high expectations for the Bond movies. I don't hold them to crazy high standards. They are what they are, and I think they're fun. But of the Daniel Craig ones, it was definitely the weakest. A lot of people are expressing hope that uh, after this next one, like the moody, grimdark incarnation of James Bond is going to be put on ice for a bit, and maybe we'll get something that's a little more campy. That could be fun. I mean, that could be fun to explore. I mean, I was definitely on board with gritty reboot uh, James Bond when it was when it was new, but yeah, it's definitely run its course, and I do think there that there, there should be a shift to something else. And uh, it's been a long time since there were Austin Powers movies, so James Bond could be a, a little more sillier and self-aware, I think. And it would be interesting to see them try to do like that Diamonds Are Forever type of vibe, except modernized. Well, like what's the what's the twenty twenty five version of that? Yeah, it could be really fun to see who they choose for those kinds of villains. I mean, they have used Christoph Waltz as a Bond villain. They completely wasted Christoph Waltz, I think. They absolutely did. And, I mean, if you think of the man in, say, Inglorious Bastards, like, that could translate really well into a Bond villain. And they just wasted him. You had an opportunity, guys, and you just... You took a swing and you missed, and I guess that's fine. And he was secretly James Bond's brother all along. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. That's one of those things. I, I didn't hate Spectre after I got out of it, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. Just, you know, I mean, it, but there are other there are other actors that are really popular and really, like, in right now that you could really tap for some kind of, like, you know, Blofeld-type craziness. I mean, you don't even have to dig that deep. And, you know, regardless uh, of whatever the uh, cosmetic changes and what people uh, want from action movies, there seems to be a persistent desire to watch the big, tough, manly man do the things that no man could ever possibly do in real life and just sort of imagine that under ideal circumstances, you could be that man. And I think that's that, that's what's at the heart of this franchise, really. Yeah, that, and they like to play with all of the toys, too. I mean, I think that was something that the, you know, grim, uh, gritty reboot sort of had to recognize and tip a tattoo. In Casino Royale, he doesn't really use that. There's a fancy car with some hidden, you know, mechanized glove compartments that pop out, but there is no cue. They don't, uh, he doesn't go through a whole process of, you know, finding all of these really cool toys that he can use while he's on his missions in the next movie they bring that back because the fans wanted it the new cue is a adorably young nerdy kid with glasses who often appears to be sort of choked up in bond's presence and is like you know it's so cool this is a 007 it's 007 i'm so cool this is so cool as opposed to you know the original like sort of please don't break my shit bond please please don't break my shit i like how you skipped over quantum of solace okay so 
I mean, I don't hate it as much as everyone else does, but uh, it's it is definitely more of an awkward coda to Casino Royale than its own film, and it has too much shaky cam. Which is why I forget about it sometimes. Okay, <laughs> it's literally just the bonus scenes, the extended scenes for Casino Royale, and shaky cam gives me a headache, so I haven't rewatched it very often. All right. And let, let's just be honest, Q is awesome, and this incarnation of Q is awesome, and we should just get to his movie already. <laughs> okay, I mean, I wasn't planning on doing these in order since we started with <laughs> Casino Royale, but hey. Okay, well, I mean, that's everything I wanted to talk about. Was there, uh, was there anything you wanted to uh, bring in that we haven't brought up yet? Um, I mean, I think we covered most of it. It's, it's interesting to go back and read the book when you haven't read any of them at all and you've watched the whole series or well not the whole series but you know all of the ones worth watching really because I didn't have any of the background characterization that these movies were trying to draw from so it is true that you know this book is this movie was definitely the most faithful to the book in my opinion of like characterization of Bond I, I would say Sean Connery's is probably the most far off, arguably. He he re- he really goes out there. Any boomers listening to this are just it's just a gas right now, a listen, gog even. Listen, I love Sean Connery Bond. It's not the Bond from the books, and that's okay because the Bond from the books is kind of boring. But yeah, it's very interesting to go back and read it and have the spoilers. I guess is the best way to put it because earlier before we were we sat down and recorded I asked some questions about wait so why did this happen then and that's when you brought up the Fleming sweep like I think you were expecting me to explain it and I was like no that's a plot hole yeah and it's just it's just a plot hole it just doesn't make any sense and it's interesting to go back and watch the movie then after having read the book and see how they try to fix those plot holes. Okay, well, if that's everything, we just went on long enough. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Join us next time. Thanks!